Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients and their families because inefficiencies, overwork and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost effective, dignified and just for everyone involved. All right, Quadcast Nation, this is our first sponsored show by Edward Life Science. We really appreciate their uh, support here. And we were, this is our first intro into some of our critical care content. And with, I couldn't think of a better guest than uh, Dr. Daryl Jones, who's all the way from, where, where are you at currently, Daryl? In Melbourne, Australia. Melbourne, Australia. Well, thanks for joining us on the show. How are you doing today? I'm very good. Thank you. Awesome. I'm awesome. wide awake and I've just had my second coffee. So I'm. Amen. Amen. Why don't you tell us, actually, just tell us a little bit about your background in terms of uh, where you practice clinically, academic site, areas of interest. Uh, we'll start with that. Fantastic. Thank you. So I'm an intensive care physician and um, I'm also uh, a physician as well. Not so much practicing as a physician at the moment. Um, I work at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne, and probably that's most famous, firstly, the medical emergency team, but also because of Ronaldo Belomo works there as well. We're about 50 metres apart. Um, I Academically, I'm a, an associate professor at Monash University, and I'm also an honorary associate professor at Melbourne University. Um, my major interest is deteriorating patients. People often associate with me with the MET. And I think increasingly we need to look at broader concepts rather than just the medical emergency team. I think yeah. medical co-management of surgical patients, uh, perioperative services, um, step-down units, as you call them, we call them high-dependency units in Australia. And, and I think uh, maybe uh, continuous monitoring, uh, but also um, analytics and, and laboratory tests and assisting clinicians with um, decision support at the point of care. And I think a lot of things are, are just monitoring tools and I don't think they necessarily should um, dictate management, but I think they can guide management, assist with decision support. Absolutely. So they're, they're my, and then teaching and training junior doctors and mentoring junior doctors and, and academics. They're my major passions, I think. Um, as I get older, so <laughs> you sound like a busy, busy man. And uh, I, so, so we're here to talk about the your paper, uh, yes. rapid response team review of hemodynamic unstable ward patients, the accuracy of cardiac index assessment. And what I am excited to talk to you about is using non-invasive monitoring on the ward when you're seeing that patient that is acutely ill. <clears throat> And using those tools to be able to uh, better assess your patient and, and to better resuscitate your patient. So, maybe I, before you even jump, jump in, why did you do this study? Like, what, what inspired this study? Yep. So, there were two things there was an academic interest, and I guess also a clinical interest. So, we had a fellow from the United Kingdom. We call them registrars in Australia, but you call them fellows. Fellows is a slightly different meaning in, in Australia. Um, his name's Chris Iington, and I need to acknowledge him because he was really the major driver. Mm. Uh, and he had an academic interest, 
but I have a clinical interest about a third, a quarter of all our medical emergency team calls are associated with either tachycardia and or hypotension. Um, and I'm very interested in the role or the association of sepsis and medical emergency teams in hospitalised patients. I think there's a massive focus on the ED. Many rivers clearly stimulated that. Emergency yeah. yeah, in the ED. And we've had massive numbers of multi-centre RCTs. And there's this huge scotoma for hospitalised sepsis and the recognition and response to that. And if you think about, you know, um, Kumar's study of delays in appropriate antibiotics, emerging trends about the timeliness of vasopressor treatments, I think that there's this massive pool of septic patients in hospital wards. Um, mm. And about a quarter of all the met calls in our hospital probably have sepsis, either as a cause, a direct cause of the, the deterioration, or the patient has sepsis at the time. Mm. And so I think this is a huge area of um, unmet clinical need. Um, there's a lot of focus on sepsis in the ED, but it's not in the, in the wards. And so I guess they're my major focuses. And I have a bit of a, a clinical bias that I think that um, particularly junior fellows or junior registrars go to a MET call and they see a patient with hemodynamic compromise and they either adjust the, um, their goalposts, as we say in Australia, they just say, oh, we'll just change the trigger activation for half an hour, two hours, or they just give a fluid bolus, the patient's hemodynamics temporarily get better and they walk away. Mm. And so that, that concerns me is that uh, they're seeing something in a moment in time and it's, it's not something that necessarily they longitudinally follow up. So that, that was really the major two areas. But as we started to look into this, as Chris started to do a literature review, we realised that nobody really has measured or estimated cardiac output in MET calls and nobody has looked at continuous hemodynamic monitoring and the response to treatments uh, during MET calls. And so this academically was interesting. Um, and the other thing I think, uh, I, I often think people focus on the MET and the intervention and the the people talk about the controversy about the evidence. I think the best thing that the medical emergency team model has done is put a very clear focus on deteriorating patients in hospital. Mm -hmm. In the States, you could, in, in North America, you talk about failure to rescue. Mm -hmm. In Australia, we talk about recognition and response to deteriorating patients. It's slightly different terminology. I guess failure to rescue means that an adverse event has occurred mm -hmm. um, and, and the patient didn't get rescued. Uh, we like to focus on recognising and then responding to that deterioration. I think the Met's done that. And I think what this ClearSight project has done is really um, highlighted to me that we don't do targeted um, and detailed hemodynamic targeted therapies in Met calls as we would in anaesthesia or in the intensive care unit. And so I think this is probably the start of a journey. But I think um, as when we talk about the results of the study, I think it's highlighted the fact that um, patients at the end of the MET call may have some improvement, but they're still not uh, rescued, for want of right. a better term. There's still potential need for them to be followed up and to be triaged and assessed in an ongoing manner for their potential need for mm. admission to the intensive care unit. Mm. 
So the, the, I guess they were the major motivating factors. And I, and, and I think Frank Seabat in the States has looked a lot at capillary refill time. Um, and you alluded to the fact that um, uh, we need less invasive techniques. And I think that was the other appeal. It's clearly not practical to, to start putting arterial lines in patients on the ward. Um, mm. And if you've got a junior fellow, that might not be practical. Uh, and it's probably not necessary. Well, in fact, it's definitely not necessary. And for the purpose of research, you would have trouble, I think, getting ethics through to put a, an arterial line, even if you had a proficient proceduralist, uh, to put an arterial line in somebody purely for the sake of um, research. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't, get, you couldn't realistically get consent. You couldn't argue that somebody who was deteriorating was in a position to give informed written consent. So I, I guess to answer your questions, um, uh, lots of patients have hypotension and tachycardia, maybe a third. Uh, there's a lot of interest around sepsis. Uh, we've never, we couldn't find another study that looked at continuous hemodynamic monitoring. And the, and the fourth point is that um, uh, there's an overlap with sepsis and, and we wanted to see from at least a research perspective what happened during the hemodynamics uh, yeah. during menopause. So Yeah, that, that, that's, that's fantastic, Daryl. And, and one of the questions I had was, how practical was it? You know what I mean? Like to use yeah. ClearSight because um, certainly it is non-invasive, but was it, was it easy to use? Was it, were you able to get results in a fairly uh, rapid manner? Uh, so the answer is yes, but there's definitely a learning curve. Mm. Um, and, and Chris had done a lot of work with healthy volunteers. Uh, he'd actually published a paper before we did the MET study uh, and so he'd had a lot of familiarity with it. It's basically, I don't know if you're familiar with it, you apply a cuff uh, in the upper arm, similar to a blood pressure cuff, and then there's a probe that you apply to your finger and they're connected. Mm-hmm. And it's similar in concept to a saturation probe. It, it measures a colour signal, but it rapidly inflates on the finger um, and measures the sort of the blood pressure, but I think it's the blood volume. I think it's called constant, constant arterial volume, I think they call it. And, and I, I can't remember the exact number of times, but it, it inflates and deflates extremely rapidly. Mm-hmm. And, and the end result, I mean, it's a bit of a black box, but it's been validated in other settings compared to mm-hmm. other techniques. You end up getting a pulse contour uh, similar to other um, techniques, but without the need for an arterial line. Mm. Uh, and so you get a continuous blood pressure and a semi-continuous. You know, it's not beat to beat, but it, it sort of averages over 30 seconds is, is my understanding of it. Um, mm. And so, yes, it is easy, easy to apply. In terms of practicality in this study, we had a research assistant do it because we wanted the clinicians to be blinded. We didn't want it to influence their management. And we also wanted to see... Uh, um, what the what the results were in a in a blinded manner. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it's actually interesting. Chris alluded to Chris's uh, previous work in health. We, we got ninety seven. I think they were mostly staff in the ICU, and we we measured their cardiac index, and we found that it was sort of in the range of three and a half liters per minute squared. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you do literature reviews and look at the cardiac index in healthy subjects, the literature is actually a lot less 
um, it's a lot more sparse than you would think. Mm. And so this was interesting and we showed a clear reduction in the, um, in the cardiac index with age. So that, that was interesting. Mm. Um, I, I guess getting back to your previous question, um, we, did, we did have a re- research assistant in terms of the practicality. I think it would be a great um, a role for a respiratory therapist. Yeah. Uh, we, don't, we don't have them in Australia, but I think if you had a nurse-led team or a junior fellow, I think the, uh, the respiratory therapist, if it's a hemodynamic met call rather than a respiratory met call, they could be applying the, the, uh, the device while the clinicians start doing their initial triage. So um, we, we don't have RTs in Australia, but um, from, from what I've heard, it sounds like, you know, they're, they're very into gadgets. Uh, <laughs> I have no comment. I, I mean, <laughs> I think I think you're actually right. They do like to play with their toys. Um, yeah. So, tell me, what, results of the of so so in terms of like to, to actually to be just to be clear as possible, what was like the primary objective um, what, yeah. and the primary um, um, outcome, and um, what were the results of yeah, of your sure, paper? absolutely. So we wanted to do a feasibility study because it's never really been the device, the clear sight device has never really been tested in MET calls. And so the first thing was, can you actually even get a signal? Um, these are quite unstable patients. Are they sweaty? Are they shut down? Um, it's clearly contraindicated in patients with peripheral vascular disease. Uh, is it possible to even get a signal? So that was the first question. And the second question is, can it provide a reliable signal for, a, a you know, a period and for, for purposes of the study we define it as 20 minutes and that was mostly because of the the sheer amount of data uh, to store and analyze subsequently so um, we got signals in um, 47 out of 50 patients so that's pretty good I, I think and we got signals for 20 minutes in all of those uh, so I guess that's the first thing it's it's feasible mm-hmm. we predefined a couple of groups and the two groups we did were because um, our criteria for hemodynamic MET calls are based on systolic blood pressure rather than MAP, and it's systolic less than 90, and it's a heart rate greater than 125. And they might sound quite soft. I know that some triggers elsewhere are a bit more extreme than that, but we want to have a very sensitive system, uh, and we tolerate a large number, for want of a better terms, of false negatives. Mm-hmm. There are triggers. And the other predefined group we looked at was um, those that received a fluid bolus. So um, they were clearly different at their baseline. The ones that were hypotensive had a lower cardiac index. Um, interestingly, the mean or the, the median cardiac index was high in both groups. I've just got the results in front of me. I can't quite remember them. But for the, for the tachycardic group, the median cardiac index was four which is obviously very quite high. But even in the hypotensive group, most patients had a, well, 50% had an index of greater than three and a qu- only a quarter had an index of less than 2.6. So that's an interesting finding in its own right, I think, that the majority of patients in MET calls with hemodynamic instability seem to have a relatively normal, if not high, cardiac index 
Um, so that feeds into my bias as I was, uh, and I need to acknowledge my bias, that um, just giving a fluid bolus and walking away from a met call is probably not a smart idea. That uh, it's probably going to temporise things. And certainly a substantial proportion of the patients were thought to be hypovolemic, but I think it's focused on the fact that maybe it's not all low cardiac index and hypovolemia, that a substantial proportion of these patients have a normal, if not high, cardiac output. And we need to really pay close attention to them to see which of them need um, critical care admission and intervention subsequently. So, so that was the first finding, that, that they were different. There was a, appeared to be two different groups um, hemodynamically, maybe clinically. The hypotensive group were perceived to have a uh, higher incidence of hypovolemia. But again, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you think the hypovolemic, you're going to give a fluid challenge and um, you, you know, you've fulfilled your own clinical bias at, at the time. Um, obviously, volume status is one of the hardest things to assess and evaluate in, in clinical medicine, I think. Um, the, se the second finding was that they, it was feasible to get a signal. Uh, and as I've said, I don't think we've found um, uh, much in the way of literature looking at continuous monitoring and the feasibility of doing it. And the third finding was that the tachycardic group improved substantially with time. But those that were hypotensive, the, the median MAP, so the median mean arterial pressure, really only just reached 70 by the end of the 20 minutes. And so, again, I think, to me, that this has highlighted the fact that there are a group of patients that maybe think people think, oh, they're just asymptomatic hypotension. And I'm sure people used to think that about sepsis in the ED. It's just a little bit of an elevated lactate or a the blood pressure is just a little bit low before many rivers and others highlighted the fact that an elevated lactate is actually really not good for you. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there's probably some under-resuscitated patients on the ward that we really need to start thinking about how do we risk stratify them, you know, um, which, which, ones, which of those patients are actually more at risk, uh, which ones probably are going to benefit from intensive care admission and what do we have an algorithmic approach to uh, hemodynamic resuscitation and monitoring do we need step down units or step up units because i'll be going from the ward or high dependency units as we call them in australia where they might need a even just a little bit of peripheral i don't know what you call it in states and canada metaraminol uh, and alpha agonist um, aramine it's called in australia you know peripheral vasopressor yeah, like, like, like a phenylephrine. A, a little okay. bit similar, yeah. Maybe, okay. maybe you don't have it in, in, in North America. So there's something similar. Uh, it's mostly an alpha agonist or vasoconstrictor. Mm. Even just for 12, 24 hours until their vasodilatory state wears off, um, you know, can you have semi-invasive monitoring without the need to fully ramp someone up to critical care treatment? So I, I guess um, it's posed a lot of questions. It's to me, uh, it, before COVID came, we were thinking about, you know, how do we start applying this to, to care? COVID's just swamped everything. We're just getting at the end of our second wave now. But I think um, everyone's talking about post-COVID, 
you know, life after COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Australia, we're starting to think about that now, which is a fortunate position to be in. And I think we need to start refocusing ourselves on, um, on, on what's the role of this in Met Calls, what's the role of this of ClearSight as part of an integrated hemodynamic assessment and treatment plan, you know, does it, is it a trigger like a saturation probe for getting an echo, um, you know, calling up somebody from the ICU to bring a bedside echo? If the index is low, you might want to get a, a targeted echo, really focus on cardiogenic causes, hypervolemic causes. If the index is high, to me, uh, unless the patient's profoundly hypovolemic, it doesn't make sense to be giving loads of fluid to somebody who already has a high cardiac index. Um, you know, really increasing the blood pressure by increasing the stroke volume if you're hypothesizing someone's hypovolemic. And if their index is already high, they probably need some form of vasoconstrictor. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's a, a, a device to assist and target further investigations. And maybe we can use it to triage the patients who might require clinical care treatment. Um, that's what I think in our hospital. We're fortunate. We have relatively senior fellows on our medical emergency team. We have extremely highly trained nurses. So we don't let all of the intensive care nurses go to met calls. It's a highly select group, maybe 10 or 15% of our whole intensive care nursing workforce uh, in a group that can go to met calls. They, they go and have to go undergo separate training and credentialing. So we're very fortunate, you know, we have an attending Monday to Friday. So I think for us, it might be um, an, a guide to targeting further hemodynamic assessment. It's clearly focused us on the need to monitor sequentially. I think the major um, role and advantage would be in a nurse-led team uh, and in a team where you have junior fellows who potentially don't have the clinical assessment skills uh, that um, that you might have with more senior trainees. And uh, I think if you've got a respiratory therapist, as I've said earlier, I think it would be a great role for them if they're attending a MET call that doesn't have a respiratory focus, that they could be potent- that could be a great role for them to be applying um, a, a clear site to, to start the initial hemodynamic assessment. Yeah, that to me is the, to me the, the biggest draw for this is put the junior junior staff like at our site absolutely for example you got r1 in ophthalmology and you know they if you have more objective measures telling you that a patient is not doing well you know if the absolutely. index is low uh you know showing signs of hypovolemia more objective signs i think this this could be a, as you mentioned a trigger for whether it's uh, admission, whether it's for another intervention or a procedure, again, that escalation of care. Yeah, of escalation of care. You know, you could have a if you've got junior fellows, you could have a a, um, a treatment algorithm or decision support where you say, if at ten minutes the map is not greater than X and the cardiac index is not greater than Y, despite treatment, then you must call an attending or you must call a senior fellow. Uh, you know, it can be, it, and, and I keep saying this, and, it, and I draw the analogy with a pulmonary artery catheter. At mm. the end of the day, it's a monitoring device. 
and in its own right, on its own, it is not going to change the outcome. Right. It provides information to clinicians at the bedside to assist with their decision-making, and the differences in outcome are going to be almost certainly dictated by what those decisions are and what the response to the information is. A monitoring device is never going to change outcomes. Mm-hmm. And, and it's going to be the decision support and the, and the timeliness of the response and the escalation of care that comes with those decisions that I think are going to influence outcome. And so, as you've alluded to, it might be, you know, when do you call an attending? When do you get an echo? Um, when do you think about hypovolemia, et cetera, et cetera? So, when do you need that anatrope? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I think uh, I love it. It's, and it's a very excellent point, Daryl, too. It's what the information on its own is nothing. It's what you do with the information. And, and so to have... That's a, you know, implementation is also an important part of all this. And what's the best way to do that? You know, like if it's, especially if you're nurse led, if you're mostly staff led, like junior staff, you know, I think you're, um, depends on what, what setting, but the the key message there though is um, that, you know, it's what you do with the information, not the information on its own. Agree. And, and, and you struck a beautiful point. There's such, heterogeneity in our services and, and what the patients we treat and, and what the responses can be provided, not only between centres, but potentially from day to day, mm-hmm. depending on the seniority of the fellow you've got, but between day and night and, yeah. the, and out of hours, you might find that you need clear sight mostly out of hours if yeah. you have senior fellows and attendings during the day. Yeah. It's funny you say that too, Daryl. We we about we have a paper that's about two years old showing that nighttime met calls were associated with poor outcomes, mortality, more issues. So uh, you know, I I definitely hear you there. Listen, Dr. Jones, thank you so much for the excellent overview and presentation on this on this paper and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. We wish you well wishes and staying safe out in Australia. I know we're we're doing okay over here, but uh, um, really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks so much for asking me to speak. Absolutely.